Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Film 5. We're back. We're back with the second part of our Stanley Kubrick double bill, where we counted down our fives to threes and all of our bits and pieces about Stanley in part one. Could this um, yeah, be the first ever one that we've done in 20 or podcasts where we have the same top five? This and is, almost, almost all of them see. in the same order. Yeah, it yeah. could well be. Um, there's so much to talk about with Kubrick, of course, and that's why we've spread it over two episodes. We've got plenty of correspondence we'll read out as well in a moment or two. But one thing we haven't talked about yet, with, to do with Kubrick, and it seemed very appropriate timing to do it. It also seems appropriate this is a long podcast ep- um, ep- double episode, isn't it, with Kubrick's length of films. But one of, one of his um, motifs he's used quite a bit, and it goes back to the era he was putting films out on cinema screens, post-modern era, is the overture and the intermission. Yeah. You don't see that very often in films. You've seen Yeah, it. he has in quite a lot of his films. Yeah, yeah certainly some... Spartacus and Barry Lyndon and 2001 all had them. Yeah, that's right. And um, you get it in biblical epics. You get it in things like Gone with the Wind and really long old films. But, yeah, you and, and the audacity of it is, is interesting because you have the overture. When you get an overture on a film... Usually you have just a still frame image of one particular image that just stays on the screen while you have the music playing. In the case of Kubrick, he maybe pops an image on the screen for a moment and it goes to a black screen and you're sitting there for maybe two or three, four minutes listening to music, lovely music, but nothing's going on on the screen. And it is a visual uh, medium, isn't it? When all yeah. You might have silent film with no music apart from whatever the individual theatres deemed to put on, but the other way round's a bit weird. And the notion was that you'd have people would arrive maybe a bit late and there's just loads of kerfuffle and people can sit down over a longer period, not miss the film. And in the meantime, people getting disturbed are not missing anything because there's nothing on the screen. And they're just listening to the music, waiting for the film to start. Bit weird, but there we go. Uh, West Side Story is another one that has a long overture at the front of it. Phil, one of your favourite films, I'm sure. I will take your word for that. You've not seen it, are you? a musical fan. I've seen neither because it is not my oeuvre. But anyway, that's enough about that. But intermissions, yes, obviously you get them in very long films. I'll tell you one that was done in the more recent era was Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, which is nearly four hours long. Four hours, yeah. And it really needed an intermission. Yeah. How good it could be, it needed an intermission. And actually, it's pretty much dead dead centre in the middle. And um, I thought it was a... Um, yeah, Kubrick's aren't normally dead centre because quite often he he separates his films up into chapters. He did it in Barry Lyndon, he did it in two thousand and one. You have a sort of part one and a part two and a part. Even three. Shining's got chap, chapter yeah. one, isn't it? The titles on it. Um, Spartacus. Um, I listened to the commentary. Well, watched slash listened to the commentary of um, Spartacus um, just yesterday, and it's interesting. They had they've got an intermission in that, and apparently uh, it was going to be in a in a point. There's a scene where they all go down to the beach, camp on the beach ahead of the the main battle to come, which um, sounds like quite a long way into the film. And it was quite a long way into the film, way past halfway. And they decided not to do that. They had it at an earlier point, which was better, where Spartacus has just defeated um, one of the uh, Roman commanders and sent him packing on his horse as one of very few survivors from a battle. And then the intermission comes in. And then the second half starts with that same... um, uh, Roman general arriving at the Senate and yeah. talking, explaining what's happened and what Spartacus's message is, and that's where they actually settle on as an intermission. But apparently, in a in a preview screening, they had another intermission spot, 
which was even later than the first one I talked about, which oh, seemed okay. weirdly late into the film. I mean, it's about way over two thirds of the way through. Yeah, which is very bizarre. So, yeah, it's a, it's a strange concept, but I think it suits longer films. That's fair enough. And we don't don't really get it anymore, though, do we? You don't. Well, you don't get three to four hour films, do you? That well, I had to sit through Avatar two with my kids. That was three hours long, and I really wished there'd been an intermission, my... but there wasn't. <laughs> Or even a fire alarm. <laughs> yeah. My condolences yeah. to you, Phil. I have no intention of watching Oh, that. God, it was awful. I mean, <laughs> the visuals were incredible, but that can only yeah. see you so far. Well, the visuals are incredible on Cuba. After 15 minutes, it felt like watching someone play a computer game. Yeah. I mean, you've got to have more than just good visuals, haven't you? No, I mean, no, exactly. Yeah, and I've, I think Kubrick does. James Cameron often doesn't. Anyway, we'll, we'll get on to that later. Right, so... Uh, we're on to our top twos in a minute, but just before we do so, got a bit of correspondence. I put out a message to uh, people to find out what their thoughts are on Kubrick. And I mean, it's, it's a mixed bag, really. I, I think um, okay. you've got um, obviously like the, the, the main shortlist is going to come from The Killing, Lolita, 2001, Spartacus, Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, Eyes Wide Shut, Full Metal Jacket, Doctor Strange. That's pretty much every single film. Oh, of glory, yeah. You it's, just it's said all... the whole list out of every film he ever did. <laughs> It's the short long list or the long short list, yeah. I don't know which one it is. Um well we've we've had correspondence from a few people. Um first of all, we have Josh from the Midlands has said, I don't have much to add on Kubrick because I've not seen many of his films, but the shining was so powerfully scary to teenage me that at thirty-three years of age now, I still cannot have a shower curtain left open over a bathtub anywhere. It has to be fully drawn back. <laughs> um we might talk about the shining later. Yeah. Well, we definitely will, whatever is in the top two. Yeah. Um yeah, so that's that's quite amusing. But he says controversially the book is still far superior. Uh, to the film, mind you, he says. I haven't read the book. I'm not a massive oh. fan of Stephen King in terms of his writing style. I mean, his ideas are interesting and yeah. prolific as well, isn't he? But I'm, I'm sure not... at some point we'll do Stephen King adaptations. It's been there a mixed bunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had, um, yeah, we had um, Alan from Surrey said this is tough. Probably have to put Doctor Strangelove at the top. Then, in no particular order. Parts of Glory, Spartacus, and Full Metal Jacket. Uh, and then he said, I forgot about the killing. Uh, he said um, that uh, you'd have to put that in there as well, somewhere along the line. Um, so that's that. There's, um, yeah, what else do I have? There's one or two others I've read out as well, if I find them. Um, where are we going? I can't find them now. They've, this is typical. This is the problem with... Uh, well, while you're doing that, I'll explain my new beer. I'm now on the Arundel yeah, Brewery, Sussex Dark. Which one, sorry? Smoothale, Arundel Brewery. Oh, Arundel, yeah. Local yeah. one for, for myself. Um, yeah. Yeah, handcrafted ales of Sussex, rich smooth ale. And it's very pleasant indeed. Excellent. That's very good. I'm still on the neck oil rather boringly, but uh, yeah. Now, I do like a good Sussex beer, and we should mention again, if people didn't already know, we're both from Sussex originally. Phil still yeah. lives there. I'm in London, but um, I get down whenever I can. In fact, and I we have to... a good few um, few beer breweries around. Yeah, I've got to invite you to a Sussex brewery trip we're doing quite soon, actually. I'll tell you about that off air later on. <laughs> um, that anyway, good. yeah. Yeah, so that's that's good. So I'm still trying to find these other correspondents. I don't know what's happened there. That's all right. We'll come back to them in the end then. Yeah, we'll come back to them later on. Um, if I don't find them in the next few seconds while I'm talking, we can always uh, we can always catch up with those later on. Um, but it's um, I mean, it's it's generally a lot of the same films in slightly different orders, really, when it comes to that kind of stuff, isn't it? Um, yeah, still no joy finding it so far. So we'll leave that till later. So we'll go then, Phil, to your number two. 
Right, so for my number two, I have to take a breath before reading the title out because it's so long. <laughs> We're going for Doctor Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. We might have the same order, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it at number two as well. Yes, indeed. So the story of a insane American general uh, who orders a bombing attack on the Soviet Union, triggering a path to nuclear holocaust that a war room full of politicians and generals frantically tries to stop. Yeah, yeah. This is this is this this film's probably more different to the rest of his films than any other. It sort of sticks out a bit like a, a sore thumb in that it's a comedy. I mean, there's dark humour in his other films, but no, no, nothing on on this sort of level. Um, I mean. This is a brilliant film. It's very much a vehicle for, for Peter Sellers. So he plays three roles. It was originally supposed to be four. He was worried about that and injured himself and then he couldn't play the fourth role they'd have planned for him. So the three roles that he takes on are uh, Group Captain Lionel Mandrake, uh, the President of the United States of America, Merkin Muffley, as well as Dr. Strangelove himself, a former Nazi nuclear war, uh, war expert, uh, with alien hand syndrome, which I'm believed to, but I believe is something that Peter Sellers improvised. Yeah, and, so, and that's actually the least prominent role, actually, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah, by a small margin, it's less than Mandrake, isn't it? So it's the uh, it's the least screen time. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so um, yeah, the, this film is mad. It's only an hour and a half long. It packs a lot into it. Um, George C. Scott, Sterling Hayden, Keenan Wynn, Jack Creeley, um, Slim Pickens, or James L. Jones, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, all sort of round out the rest of the cast. Uh, they're all fantastic. Um, there's a lot of stories, uh, uh, <laughs> sort of mythology built out, uh, built up around this film. Oh, well, you know, we can go into some of them. Um, it's loosely based on a thriller, which was not in no way a comedy called uh, Red Alert that came out in 1958 by, uh, by an author called Peter George. He co-wrote the script with Kubrick. Kubrick decided to turn it into a comedy and he brought in a satirist named Terry Southern to turn the script into a black comedy. Hmm. So um, it then turned into a bit of a bit bit of a, a um, mad dash because um, at the same time, a film called Failsafe um, was being directed by Sidney Lumet. Um, uh, the, with Henry Fonda and Walter Matthau in it, which had pretty much exactly the same plot, believe it or not. And Kubrick was worried that his film would kind of get lost compared to the other film. So he had the um, author, uh, Peter George, of, 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 of take out a plagiarism case against the author of Failsafe to slow down their production so that he could get Doctor Strange Love made and out in time, so he would be the first one to market. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, which I think it managed to beat Failsafe to the to the uh, to the um, cinema by about eight months. Now this film is is absolutely mad, isn't it? Right from the beginning, when you've got the aeroplanes. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a phallic symbol element. Yeah. Got to mention again. He's you know, he's got to chuck that in. There's something that looks. Yeah, very this is 1964, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a definite sort of penile looking missile, and then there's an attachment process going on between two aircraft. Yeah, may or may it's not. It's not very subtle. 
No, not really. No. And and we don't care. We don't care. Um I mean that tease you tease you up for the rest of the film, really. Does. Yeah. I mean it's shot in beautiful black and white, stunning to look at, really nice looking film. Um it's as I said Peter Sellers doing what Peter Sellers does. He likes to Oh, he's brilliant. We should do likes, him at some likes point. To yeah. and inhabit uh caricature characters doesn't he but in a in a great way and it's definitely the funniest of the films there's a there's a, there's the, again visual jokes there's one joke where i can't remember what it says exactly but one of the people speaking i think it might be the general and it's got something like um it says something about advice on mega death as a yeah. girl, written on the at the bottom at the top of the um the podium he's <laughs> standing next to really bizarre you've got strange love who as i said is a very small Screen presence, so, isn't it? Yeah, but he improvised a lot of his dialogue, didn't he? Yeah, he's got his sort of grin, hasn't he? His teeth come out really, yeah, wide. Really, he talking, you know, like this. Doctor Strange Love advising the American government, <laughs> and it's um, he's got the as you said, he's got the alien hand syndrome or whatever it's called. He's got one <laughs> glove on, and the yes. other is completely uncovered, and this this glove seems to have its uh, act on. Itself. I think he must be based on. Werner von Braun, I think, yeah. Probably, I think so, I think so. Yeah. And he's, he's only in two scenes, essentially, isn't he? He's he's in quite mm. a long way through. He's in the war room, and we we haven't seen him, really, unless there's a... Yeah, he turns shot. up quite towards the end, really, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, really? some, somebody, someone asks him something, and he wheels out in his wheelchair, comes over to the foreground and speaks about some practical details, and then he then comes back again, not too much longer, but... Right at the end of the film, the famous scene with his arm going up in the air, yeah, Heil Hitler salute. Yes, it's actually, right near the end. I mean, it's almost the last frames of the film, which yeah. I didn't realize was that late into it. But it's br- it's a brilliant caricature. The the notion is the the world's doomed, and someone proposes the notion that they can go um, deep into deep mines that wouldn't be penetrated by radioactivity. And there were and Doctor Strange loves ask, oh, how long would you? need to stay down there to be safe or oh, probably over 100 years yeah <laughs> develop you you can have the way they talk about years. millions of deaths and how that would be a good result and <laughs> yeah and he's talking about eight to one ratios on men to women and you basically eugenics he's talking about yeah. how you do you get the purest people and all this sort of thing and that's when he starts getting his arms starts getting uh furatastically excited yeah. <laughs> so to speak so i mean the other character he plays the president so i think he he um he plays that one much more straight laced so that's i think the originally best, that's the best one i think for him yeah so originally he was improvising him and making the president completely over the top and the rest of the cast were just finding it so hilarious that they just couldn't deal with it and i think kubrick put a stop on it and just said that's just too much yeah. play one of them straight you know well i mean the mandrake's quite straight as well but yeah. in a kind of earnest way but, but play play that one normally and and, and save save the zaniness for for dr strange love <laughs> yeah I mean, this this is pure satire at its best. It's, oh, it's yeah. probably the best satirical film I think I've ever seen. Um, it's got some fantastic, some of the best performances from Peter Sellers. Georgie Scott's superb in it. Um, you've got... Um, Have you heard about how they filmed George C. Scott's parts in this? No, go on, tell me more. Tell so, me more. George C. Scott is a serious actor. He's yeah. a black comedy. So... Kubrick wanted George C. Scott to kind of he 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 made him do practice takes where he do it completely over the top and then he film it properly afterwards. 
And then Kubrick used all the practice takes and George C. Scott was not amused and vowed he would oh, never, fuck. ever work with him ever again. Because he, he wanted that. He would not willingly and knowingly do the kind of crazy takes. So brilliant. sort of Kubrick kind of like tricked him into it um, and sort of lulled him into a false sense of security and, rec- and secretly recorded them. And that's what went on the film. Um, and then... I think uh, one of the other actors. It, it was the um, it, it, it was the other way around. Oh, what was it? Um, Which one? What the other the other uh, um, American general Sterling Hayden? Yeah, no. So one, yeah. So um, Slim Pickens plays Major uh, King Kong. Yeah. So originally that was going to be Peter Sterling. Sellers' role. Yeah. So Slim and uh, so Slim Pickens was only given the um agent the scenes that he was in so that he would play it straight yeah so and he was not he, he was nobody was allowed to tell him that he was in a comedy so that it would be filmed properly straight yeah. it's yeah. mad isn't it it's great yeah because 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 he's on the flight he's basically in command of the flights the major mm. um that is flying that's being commanded to go and fly towards soviet territory to bomb yeah um based on the commands of general ripper rather appropriately named um, character, played by Sterling Hayden, who'd been yeah. in previous Kubrick film. The, ki- the killer. Yeah. Killing, yeah, yeah. And um, he essentially, he didn't he didn't do many films, actually, Sterling Hayden. He had a fairly limited career um, time-wise. But anyway, he, he was playing a guy, it's, apparently it's based on a real guy called, I think it's called McRae, who had been deemed to be a psychotic general he was in the American Air Force for between 1948 and 1957, and he was—I think—he was in charge of Air Strategic Command. So he was in yeah. the same position this General Ripper guy was in. Yeah, and I don't know if Kubrick knew about that. I, I presume he probably did because he's quite well, uh, yeah. quite well informed. Um, and of course, nobody knew about this until many years after Doctor Strangelove was released. Yes, that it was actually there. There was a, a ground. I, I believe that there was something that that. That there was actually a way that these generals could actually launch nuclear attack without presidential approval as yeah, well. That, that, that was kept quiet. <laughs> well, something similar. scary, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's so many things to talk about in this film. The meticulous detail, especially the procedural stuff to do with the uh, the orders and the way that the commands unravel, and then all of the things they do on the flight. All the, all the well, the, even just the, even just the set itself, um, hmm. Ken Adam. Brilliant. Yes. Obviously, his previous film was Doctor No, and he went on to do a lot of James Bond films after this. The bunker design is pure Ken Adam, but he also designed the B-52. Now, the American military, I think they said, can we borrow a B-52 to film it? And they, they said, under no circumstances whatsoever, making that film, will we, we, we do. And it, all he had to work with was a, with a, a photograph of a cockpit. And he built a, a basically a perfect reconstruction of a B-52 cockpit, so much so that any of the kind of um, they had ex-servicemen that came on and said everything's in, even the black box is in the right place. Everything's laid out exactly how you would be. And I think Kubrick, Kubrick, Kubrick sincerely doubted that Ken Adam got hold of the, pl- the blueprints for that set legally. Wow. <laughs> and, and it was said afterwards when they were releasing things, it's you have to be careful with what we, we – you have to divulge sources for how you came to prepare yeah. the details of the, of the – especially all the procedural stuff to do with the military. Yeah. 
and you better be able to back up your sources and have them as being legitimate, approvable sources that can't yeah. be controversial because you know you're dealing with a quite a difficult area and also the cuban missile crisis was going on at some time around this period yeah i didn't realize this was yeah of course it was this film was supposed to this film was i think it was originally supposed to come out on the the day that jfk was assassinated and they had to push it back a couple of months oh yeah i didn't know that yeah i mean the 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 sensitivity of the timing was incredible kubrick's films off almost always seem to be i think sydney pollack said i'm not sure i ever heard about a kubrick film being released that wasn't bathed in some kind of controversy you know got Mm. lolita the unfilmable film Russian film that couldn't even get published in Russia at first. Uh, and then yeah. it, it can't be filmed, shouldn't be filmed. It was filmed. You know, there's controversy yeah. with that. Clockwork Orange we talked about. Um, you had Spartacus where Dalton Trumbo, who'd been blacklisted, was um, broadcast as the screenwriter and um, they defied the blacklist. Essentially, it was coming out of the blacklist era. You've got um, 2001 A Space Odyssey was controversial just in the sense that it was so abstract and people yeah. what's going on here. You've got The Shining that pushed the boundaries on horror and you've got um, uh, just uh, other other stuff, even Full Metal Jacket was kind of quite hard-hitting, wasn't it? So there's always controversy involved. And yeah. this is really sensitive political times. It's post-war and in that post-war period... It's Cold War, yeah. Cold War, and you've got the fear of nuclear destruction. And yeah, the you've got the mutually is, assured destruction was... yeah. yeah. Exactly. Mutually assured destruction. And you've got the doomsday device, which is the concept uh, mentioned in this, where essentially the Russians, if attacked, there was a, uh, and this is part of the satire, they're saying, well, it's it's a device that's been, that, that can be automatically triggered, will be automatically triggered if they're under attack, once they get to a certain close proximity. And when it, that is the case, it uh, will trigger it automatically and it cannot be overridden by humans. Yeah. <laughs> I said it's the ultimate doomsday device because you, once it's triggered, you can't untrigger it, even if you yeah. want which is a ridiculous notion. And there's a great scene where they ask the ambassador who's in the war room, oh, um, why haven't you told us about this? Surely the notion of this that is the deterrent and the ter- deterrent is only there if we know it exists. Yeah. He goes, oh, we're going to announce it on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> He was the one that this was just just around the same time that he had the fight. Yeah, exactly. He was attacked by attacked by one of the attacked by one of the generals. Was he said you can't do you can't fight him. Can't fight him. It's the war room. (laughs) (laughs) And there's another reference. Probably the best line of satire ever written. I think. Yeah. The other bit, the ambassador, he goes, he says, "Well, yes, uh, the president does like surprises. You see, that's why we're going to announce it on Monday." So, in other words, they're suggesting the president doesn't even know about it. Yeah. Oh, it's just, just just genius. It's so funny. Such a funny film. You've got the abstract, and you've got the bizarre, haven't you? The the General Ripper, who's played. I by mean, Stan- if you, if, yeah. You think about get the tone of this film is perfect, but how difficult? I mean, this could under under less capable hands, this would have just been a mess. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, 100%. It's so difficult to have got that right and to have got the struck the right notes. But you've got you've got chess in there, by the way, as well. I should mention yeah. that. But, um, the, the thing is that the General Ripper character is interesting. Sterling Hayden, who's playing the guy who orders the attack and he then orders the shutdown of his facility where he's based uh, as a red zone, a red code protocol or something like that. And he's the only person who's got this three letter code 
yeah. initiate it because um, he's the guy that would be instructed by the president if you did want to have the attack. He obviously hasn't been instructed by the president, but he's done it anyway. And he's only got he's the only one who's got the three letter code to deactivate it. And of course, he's not doing that because he's gone completely psychotic. And he's got this mild man of British senior officer, Mandrake, played by Phil, uh, by by Peter Sellers, who's who's so, so mild mannered and accommodating to this yeah even when he's being held hostage yeah Yeah, he's chewing the cigar isn't he the general and mandrake's got his legs gone to string to quote him as he's lying on the sofa he can't even go there and he and he pulls out this 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 gas gun whatever it is he's got all this all this um ammunition for his shoulder and he's firing back at the people trying to attack the base to to get control of the base and to stop general ripper and to try and reason with him and Mandrake's there passing it through. Well, going, are you sure we should be doing this? And should we be this close to all this shattered glass? And yeah. and the other brilliant scene is when uh, he, he then decides, uh, you, you find out that Ripper has just said, well, uh, you know, it's it's with well, the commies, it's a, it's, it's a conspiracy. They've got into our water. They've got this uh, fl- floridation or something he's mm-hmm. calling it. Um, so they're they're slowly killing us anyway, and that's why we that's why I've attacked them. We need to finish them off. <laughs> and then Mandrake's going, oh, I'm not quite sure if that's uh, correct. Is that I'm you know, it's just complete yeah. nuances on British awkward social culture. Yeah. Such a good satire as well. And then he follows him towards the bathroom, and General Ripper goes into the bathroom, and he's going, oh yes, maybe you might want to mention the code while you're having a having that shave. And he just shuts the door that's and explodes. Shoot, shoot, he shoots himself. Shoots yeah. himself. And then this other uh, this other American sergeant comes in who's taken control of the base, breaks in. Mandrake's there. He's worked out what the code's going to be, but of course this guy, this knuckleheaded sergeant or whoever he is, uh, doesn't want to take any of it. And they he's marching him out under gunpoint. And Mandrake's trying to protest, go, look, we just need to phone the president. we try these codes. We can stop yeah. them. And he's thinking, oh, why, why should I believe this? And he's following him through. And the phones are all out because they've been done mm. in by the attack. And there's a public phone box. Yeah, he's, he's trying, a, a trying phone to phone up the president. For the president. And he's running out of money. <laughs> he's telling him, he's telling him, you've got to shoot the, uh, you've got to shoot this, uh, this uh, drinks machine because there might be some money in there. I can still pay for the call. Yeah. Which, Operators refuse to reverse charges on, which <laughs> is <just> brilliant. <laughs> and then he's going, "Well, okay, but you better you better get that president on the phone. Otherwise, he goes. Otherwise, what? He goes. Otherwise, you'll have the Coca Cola company to to answer to." <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so superb. But he gets the codes over. Everything seems to be sorted. I think twenty four aircraft have called back, and four others have yeah. shot down. The problem is one of them. It has been shot down, but it has been damaged, but it hasn't landed, and it's still yeah. flying with Slim Pickens, a ridiculously well-named actor mm. uh, who's wearing, who's literally put a cowboy hat on his head to kind of yeah. that's his thing, you know, like a typical. But apparently, when he he turned up on set, like everyone was like, "Is he dressed up like that for, for his character?" No, that's just the way he just dresses yeah. normally. Yeah, he's like, he's like the cowboy in The Simpsons. He goes, "Woohoo!" Yeah. Shooting guns, he he likes he likes a a big face cowboy hat wearing scenario, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, which is fair enough. But then, of course, they're trying to release the um, the bomb, 
they either don't know or don't care about their communication. I think they don't know, do they? Yeah. They're trying to release the bomb and everything's stopping them. It's not working. And he, he climbs down and eventually manages to release a catch, which leads to him sitting on the bomb. So he then goes yeah. off towards Russian space with his cowboy hat on, riding, riding it like, a, like a rodeo yeah. horse, <laughs> which is utterly ridiculous. Absolute. It's just brilliant satire. It's a fantastic yeah. film. I've got a few bits to mention as well. There's a little, as if the title wasn't long enough, yeah. Not to Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. It has a little tagline underneath it on the poster and on the on the publicity, which says the hotline suspense comedy, which is interesting. Yeah, other titles that were considered were Doctor Doomsday or How to Start World War Three Without Even Trying, and um, <laughs> Doctor Strange Loves Secret Uses of Uranus, <laughs> and Wonderful Bomb. They were the other other ones that they were thinking about. Wonderful Bomb, that's a curious one. Yeah. Hmm. Well, who knows? Uh, I, I don't know which one I'd prefer out of those. You may hear some clattering of tins because the cat has just joined me, so uh, that might be knocking over some beer tins in a minute. But we'll mm-hmm. see. We'll see how that goes. Uh, in the meantime, yeah, just a couple of other bits to mention. Uh, music in this film, they they mention We'll Meet Again, the Vera Lynn yes. song comes up at the end as all the mushroom clouds appear as disaster strikes. Um, you've got uh, a little subtle um, bit of music as well. They've got um, an orchestrated, slowed-down version of the, I think it's originally an Otis Redding song, Try a Little Tenderness. They've got that orchestrated, and I thought that's a brilliantly incongruous mm-hmm message as well for the film um and you've got the narrator uh giving a load of air force facts it just seems such an arbitrary thing to have you've got how handheld cameras quite a bit especially in the aircraft yeah he's not used often before or... not at that point i mean that that beca- in the sort of 90s 2000s that became kind of a quite quite a trope but at that time no one no one was doing that yeah, and this film was largely made at Shepparton Studios, which is not his usual trope. Yeah, he was in one property, and then eventually in a, a mansion. At that time, I think Peter Sellers was going through a divorce, yeah. and his he wasn't allowed to move a certain number of miles from from his house for fear that he'd run away or something like that. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, I'm <laughs> well, we'll have, we'll have to do Peter Sellers at some point as well. Yeah. That's yeah, I mean, I mean, originally when they greenlit it, Columbia said they'd only finance the film if. Peter Sellers played multiple roles after the success of Lolita, where he the single character that had numerous identities. And he'd also played multiple roles in The Mouse That Roared a few years before that as well. Multiple roles is another one I want to do, by the way. It might feature Peter Sellers quite a bit. You've got you've obviously got Alec Guinness in Kind Hearts and Coronets as well, but I'm wondering, I, I need to look into that. You're talking Jean-Claude Van Damme in the film where he played himself and his twin brother, aren't you? It's got to be. It's got to be three minutes, <laughs> hasn't it? Multiple. I mean, two doesn't sound. I know that technically is multiple, but it's got to be three or yeah. more. Is there a film where he played triplets? I don't think so. Oh, it's got to be a Jackie Chan one where he plays three films. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic stuff. So there we go. So yeah, Strange Love is number two for both of us. So so a number of years. Well, thirty years later, um, in nineteen ninety-five, Kubrick enlisted. Terry Southern, who was a satirist who did a lot of work on the film, to to script a sequel, Son of Strange Love, and he was he he didn't want to direct it himself. He was keying up Terry Gilliam to do it, um, but then Terry Southern died that year. But when they kind of went through all his effects, they found index cards laying out the structure that he'd found in you know 
that they found in the, the structure in these papers. And it was largely set in underground bunkers where strange lovers taken refuge with a group of women. I think they should have just, yeah, they, they didn't need a sequel. Just I'm glad they didn't do that. Yeah. I don't think any Kubrick film should have a sequel, really, should it? I know 2001 did because it had. Yeah. Two- and uh, as well, which I've not seen actually. So one 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 other major thing about this film. Um, so the original ending that they cut. So they were originally going to have a huge custard pie fight <laughs> at, at the end, um, and they actually filmed it. Um, and then I think Kubrick sort of changed his mind and said, "Well, farce isn't consistent with the sort of sat- satirical tone of the rest of the film." Uh, and it's annoying because because Kubrick had lots of extended cuts and bits of film for all of his films he kept them at his house in his archives and he said on my and his will he said on my death i want it all destroyed and that was it that's what happened that's that's crippling oh i'm so gutted to hear that there's loads of 2001 stuff there's loads of all of his films Yeah. yeah i think i did hear about that actually yeah yeah um actually one one more thing on dr strange i just remembered i wanted to mention was um the character of Dmitry, which is the president of uh, Russia. Yeah. Brilliant scene. He's one of the famous characters you don't see on screen. It's a bit like Captain Mannering's wife and dad's yes. aunt. Or her indoors. Her indoors in Minder. George Cole. Um, you've got Dmitry, who clearly has had a few drinks and he's partying up with some, probably with some hookers in in, in Moscow. And he's, um, he's he phones him up and he's, he's, he's saying, well, you know, we, we've, we may have just gone a little bit, one of our officers has gone a little bit silly. He's got a bit funny. <laughs> and he <laughs> may, have, may have possibly started to make plan, plans to attack you. Yes, I know, Dmitry, I'm not happy about it. I, well, how do you think I feel? <laughs> And you've got this kind of domesticated style conversation going on between the president of the USA and the president of Russia. Yeah. And it's absolutely great. He goes, can you turn the music down? I can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> All that sort of stuff. And that, I I love that stuff. That's why I think um, the character of the US president is the best of the three characters, actually, yeah. by, by Sellers, even though Strange Love is yeah. the big compliment. The headliner, yeah. It's um, I think he's he plays that so well. This deadpan, boarding, kind of like upstanding, polite, diplomatic, slightly too put upon type of president. Uh, it's it's superb, yeah. And the whole thing about there's no fighting in the war room is just one of the great lines, isn't Brilliant. it? Brilliant. Right, great so number film. One, number one, you got is it Killer's Kiss or Lolita that you haven't even seen? <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious to see if you've got the same number one as me. I've gone for The Shining. Well, of course, I've got the same number one as you. Ah, it was the first time ever. I know. Oh, is it? Is that the first one ever? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Where's Alfred that? Hitchcock. We have four the same, and since then, it's oh. the most has been two or three the same. Oh wow! I feel we should celebrate by raising a glass. Cheers, Phil. Yeah. Chin <laughs> chin. All down my neck. And what do you want? So. Nineteen eighty, The Shining. A family yeah. heads to an isolated hotel for the winter, where a sinister presence influences the father into violence, while his psychic son sees horrific forebodings, both past and future. Obviously, everybody knows, but it's Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance. Um, Kubrick's f- was first choice was Jack Nicholson. Um, 
Robin Williams and Robert De Niro and Harrison Ford were all considered by the studio. Stephen King didn't want any of them. He wanted either John Voight or Martin Sheen. Uh, Martin Sheen, who was in the end absolutely brilliant in the Dead Zone, um, but another Stephen King adaptation. Yeah. Um, Shelley Duval as Wendy Torrance, um, uh, Scatman Crothers as Dick Halloran. What a um, name! As if Slim yeah. Pickett wasn't a good enough name. Oh, no. Scatman Crothers, brilliant. Yeah, and they interviewed five thousand boys for his son Danny Torrance, looking for one someone that had an accent that fell between Nicholson's New Jersey and Duval's Texas. In the end, they went for uh, Danny Lloyd. I think he made two films and then abandoned acting. But he's great in this as well. Everybody's fantastic in this film. Yeah, got- this is your quintessential horror film. It really is, you know, in terms of just supernatural and unsettling and generally scary. It's it's unsurpassed. And I love the fact that someone like Stanley Kubrick will go out and make a horror film. You, you wouldn't see many other of his peers go out really and, you know, Steven Spielberg would do a horror film, you know. Alfred Hitchcock wouldn't really, well, I know he did Frenzy or something like that, but he wouldn't go out and do a, none of them would go anywhere near that, like sort of something like this. It's, oh, yeah. I, I love the fact that he was, you know, by this time he was, you know, turning 50 and he's still trying to look to kind of get into get, get involved in our kind of other niches and other areas and see what he yeah. can do with genre. To have landed on horror films at that stage, you know, to, to keep changing genre, to keep pushing the boundaries. I mean, he's a very focused individual. He always knew what he wanted and, well, in terms of the general notions. And with this, I, I think this film is a masterpiece. I think it's perfection. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think every shot is a winner in this film. It's... It, it it covers all of the bases in terms of uh, it, the conventional horror elements, pursuits, peril, that sort of stuff. But you've got the ghost element. You've got um, so that's quite it's quite that, that bit's quite curious. So the ghost element was downplayed a lot because um, it was big in the novel, wasn't it? It was big in the novel, but it, it was um, Steve uh, Stanley Kubrick fundamentally disagreed with the concept of life after death. So he would not really put any ghost element in it. That so right. that, that so that that was the kind of, and and a lot of people kind of highlight the, the the differences between the novel and the book and say Stephen King didn't like it because he changed it too much. As I understand it, Stephen King said it was the only one of his adaptations that he hated, but he acknowledged Kubrick was a genius. And I think the reason, as I, I'm. I'm as I've read into it, the reason that, that um, Stephen King particularly didn't like it, the changes that were made, was because it's quite autobiographical. So when Stephen King wrote this, he was an alcoholic and he was destroying his family with his alcoholic use. And he wow. wrote a novel about a father who destroys his family through alcohol abuse. And then Stanley Kubrick pretty much jettisoned all of the destroying the family through alcohol which were the bits that Stephen King really kind of felt the closest to and I, as I believe that's kind of why he was quite upset about it yeah so Stephen King's novel is he's already destroying his family the character and then they go to a hotel that's ostensibly haunted clear cut 
the Overlook. There's a TV series called Overlook coming out. Yeah, 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 it'll be yeah. interesting. A bit like Bates Motel with yeah, yeah, which I quite like Bates Motel. But anyway, also, um, I think in also in the book, Shelley Duvall's character of the wife. In yeah. the book, she's a bit more badass. She's a bit oh. smarter. She's she can look after herself a bit more. She screams for two hours constantly in this film. And you've got to feel so sorry for what Shelley Duvall went through on this film. It was borderline, you know. I mean, he 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 could probably be arrested for the way that he treated her. This is the closest, again, using the analogy with Hitchcock, it's the closest to Tippi Hedren in The Birds, this one, isn't it? He put her through the mill and he blatantly did something. He really did. He kept doing takes even when he didn't need to, just to exhaust her and to exasperate She got so stressed that all her hair started falling out. Really? God. Yeah. I know she's been interviewed since. She was in tears all the time. Yeah. She's been interviewed since and she said uh, it was really hard work. Said he's not a really nice guy, but when they're working, it was really quite traumatic. And he really pushed her and there's a lot of arguments, there's a lot of stress. And um, she said she wouldn't have, she didn't regret having done it. And it was an amazing experience to work with him. And he's a, a genius and she likes him as a person. But she said she wouldn't go through it again. No. Which is uh, telling, isn't it? Um, so, she's um, perfect for the role. Yeah, she is. So, so the scene where she walks backwards up the stairs before her husband's attack is in the Guinness Book. With a half swishing of the baseball bat. Is, yeah. That's in the Guinness Book of Records. That was 127 takes. No, no, there's there's one that's more than that. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, it's mentioned in there, but yeah. Yeah, well, there, there's a scene with... Um, you mentioned um, Scatman Crothers, who's, yeah. uh, whose character Dick Halloran, I think his name is, mm. uh, who's the uh, he's the head chef at the hotel, and he yeah. lives. Who, and he, he has the shining, the same as Danny Torrance. Yes, yeah. the shining being the expression that his own grandmother had yeah. coined uh, for having telepathic powers. Yeah, sort of visions. Yeah, yeah. He recognises it in the boy Danny, and they sit down at the commercial kitchen table. And he says, all of you, you know, you've got the same thing I've got. And my grandmother had it, called it The Shining, et cetera, et cetera. And they have a, there's, there's a what, one, two minute conversation on screen where he starts to warm to Danny and they have a little bit of a connection, although Danny's a bit reticent. Yeah. That was 148 takes. Jesus. And he did, he did that to really push, particularly to push um, uh, Scatman's, uh, yeah. the actor, uh, just to the brink, and apparently exasperatedly shouted out, "I can't take this anymore." So yeah. Stanley Kubrick goes, "All right, take a break for a minute, then we're carrying on." Yeah, <laughs> but I think I think Kubrick was quite a simple scene. I think Kubrick was quite protective of the young guy playing playing uh, Danny Torrance, but uh, and, and kind of kept him out of it. He didn't even tell him it was a horror film. He just sort of told him yeah. he thought he was filming a drama, you know. Yeah, yeah. But he looked after him, but he had no such qualms with completely abusing the rest of his cast. Mm. But this, this, this film, I say it's a masterpiece because, I mean, just from the from the outset, they have um, there's two scenes that um, set the tone. They're driving through the countryside. There's two major scenes in this film where you have a very high aerial shots. Yeah. One is the maze. We'll get onto that in a minute. But yeah. the other one is at the beginning when they're driving, and it's actually for the interview. He's gone there for the interview to, yeah. to talk about how this so will be... Looking after the hotel for off-season, essentially. Which, yeah. which is five months, I think it is, isn't it? And yeah, over the winter. He wants yeah. to be a writer, so it's ideal for him. Loads of isolation, loads of space, that's fine. And interestingly, the thing I forgot about this film, so I saw it 
recently was that the the bosses do say to him, by the way, do you know about what happened last year? We feel obliged to tell you. It makes sense that they did this because otherwise how would we know? But um, yeah. he says, well, the, the, the guy that took over last year um, axed his twin daughters and his wife to death. Yeah. Um, uh, and Jack Nicholson seems undisturbed by this. So no, that's fine. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, so that that's set up. And then you see a second scene with overhead shots going towards the hotel. This time they're travelling there to actually move in for the job. And these are done with um, helicopter shots flying over water. And there's this whole mis- misleading notion of tranquility, you know, lovely, beautiful scenery. Yeah, yeah. It's lovely, the outback in America. Then, of course, you get to the Overlook Hotel, which is actually the exteriors were shot in this huge wooden lodge yeah. or the outside of the huge wooden lodge in Oregon. The interiors were constructed... Based on uh, Yosemite National Yosemite, Park. Yosemite, yeah, it was at the Hotel Owani, I think it is in yeah. Yosemite. Yeah, it was, at that time it was the largest set they'd ever built at Elm Street because he he um, which is, doesn't normally happen for films. They shot this chronologically yes. because they wanted to show the kind of the effect that everything was happening. Very you know, unusual to shoot. Yeah, which but, but, but it meant that you'd have, have to they'd have to have several huge sets built and be and just be available at any time for to, to shoot the next it would normally be you do the scene you shoot all the scenes in that room then you knock it down and you build another one and you shoot it there so big, big, so they basically took over all of elm street with the overlook hotel yeah and yeah, it went so way over time which um actually wasn't they went well over a year over over i mean it's been a year filming it i think yeah which is mad so for a film it wasn't so much of a problem in terms of budget. I think they had accounted for some of that, but it did mean that Raiders of the Lost Ark and Star Wars were held, or well, Return of the Jedi were were held up in, in production because they were being filmed, or yeah. were being filmed there. Uh, there's the well, the well of the Wall, or whatever it is, in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well of the Souls. Well of Souls, that's the one. Yeah, and there's um, obviously major scenes in Empire Strikes Back, uh, yeah. which I mean, the Elstree Studios, one of the Sound stages is called the George Lucas soundstage. Yeah, and there's a double is it the 007 one there, or was that the other yeah, one? Yeah, I think they have yeah. done some of that. Ice Cold in Alex has been done there. Yeah. Loads of famous stuff. Big Brother, Strictly Come Dancing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, no, digression. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as you said, famously shot in order. Um, and one of, the, one of the most prominent features of this... Um, you, you see those establishing shots. Once you get to the hotel, they built a, a version of the Yosemite um, hotel in the in the studios, and they have this expand, vast expanse of space. And Kubrick's all about symmetry. He yeah. thinks he's always big on wide screen shots and symmetry and that expanse. And what he added to the equation with The Shining was the Steadicam stuff. Garrett Brown, yeah, the Steadicam. He was he was he was involved in the production, wasn't he? Production, yeah, yeah. And he was yeah. very much that. This is what I invented this for. It's not a gimmick. It's a yeah. genuine artistic yeah. tool. What it allows people to do is is to run or move and have bodily motion, but not affect the camera's motion. The camera say, stays steady, thus yeah. steady. Um, and it's a stabilising mount for yeah. a movie. Yeah, so it's got a balancing mount, yeah. And, and normally you'd have the camera, and below which would be the other um, technical elements of the camera. Uh, but what he did, he changed it around. So the camera at the lower part of the construct and all the other technical equipment above it 
And what that allowed them to do was to film about six inches below floor level. So you've got these famous scenes of Danny, the little kid. Yeah, his go-kart pedaling along, just following him along. All the way through these vast corridors, these square, big square corridors, going around corners on these enormous carpets and these these great sets. And it's it's filmed really at a low angle that's not been done before. So you've got a, a basically a steady cam tracking shot following all around the hotel, and it creates this really weird effect. And apparently you have to keep it very flat, so you can't tilt it up and down. Because as yeah. soon as you do, it creates a really weird effect, which might work well as a innovation in another film, but yeah. it was a problem in this film. So you have to be really careful with how you set the shots up. And they did the same when they followed Jack Nicholson, when he's got the axe uh, trying to prowl around the uh, the hotel yeah. trying to mayhem and he said if you tilted that up slightly by mistake jack nicholson's ass would have looked enormous <laughs> oh looked i see weirdly enormous so you really had to like the technical stuff was quite interesting but garrett brown was working on this film yeah one of his earliest films actually after inventing the the format and it, it was uh just it worked so well doesn't it? it worked so well it's iconic the way that it's used in this yeah they they made a lot of things in a way that you can't make films now. For example, the, the the later scenes, which they took a month to film, were in the May, in and around the maze. I'll talk about the earlier scene in the maze mm-hmm. in a minute. But the end scenes in the maze are it's, it's become snowy during the time they're there, and there's a pursuit scene where they're being terrorised by Jack, the father of the family, and they've gone into the maze and they're, they're tracking around there. And what they did, they had loads of dairy salt all over the flooring, which looks like snow. And then they had essentially, um, uh, what's it called? Um, styrofoam and styrofoam oh, okay. properties in the air to give it that slightly smoked, that, that snowy, foggy kind of feel. Apparently it was very hot where they were filming. And bearing in mind, this is a real maze they built. Yeah. And they didn't grow it, but they built it. Um, so they're running around in this inflammable environment with film in a maze uh you wouldn't be able to do that now no. the, the hedges they built were essentially they built a wire mesh and then put topiary over it so it looks like you know it's, yeah it's, it's grown but essentially it was eight foot tall which is decent size for a maze yeah the, the wide angle lenses especially when they're lower placed made the yeah uh, it just looks, it looks massive it. yeah but even if, even without that, it's eight foot tall. So, you know, to imagine if that, a fire had happened, it would have been an absolute disaster. They also had, there's a scene where Jack Nicholson's character, Jack Torrance, has gone, started to go nuts, and he's wandering around, and he goes to the gold room where there's uh, this ballroom. Uh, oh, yeah. And it's all, he go, he's been in there once already and had a conversation with a ghost. That, is he there yeah. or not there? Or Philip Stone. Yeah, yeah. And he's he's quite. Um, uh, it seems like he's from a different era. And then when yeah. when Jack Nicholson comes back again, you've got this this quite weirdly smoky, hazy sort of feel to the corridor. And apparently, what they did they they heated up some oil and created some sort of vapor effect, oh, okay. uh, which is again completely against health and safety. Now you couldn't do it at all. It yeah, their throats. And he, and but it created a really ethereal quality which uh makes it unique and especially yeah. can't do it anymore it's even more unique um and then he walks into the into the room which had been abandoned before and there was a sarcastic joke jack jack's character says about oh it's quiet tonight isn't it but this time yeah. it's, and it's full of 20s people in the 20s 
all on this big, vastly and fully occupied ballroom. And you've got the character Grady, who's the guy who axed his family the the winter before, is now a butler serving drinks in this place. And there's a conversation in the toilets with this weirdly bright red bathroom. And the sets, the colours, the framing... Everything about this film, it's masterpiece quality. It is Kubrick with extra anchovies. It's off the scale with this one all the way through, and it's it's brilliant. But again, you know, some some of the techniques you wouldn't be allowed to do now, but you suffer for your art, and I think he's he's created some memorable images and moments. So one one thing we haven't really spoken much about in this film yet, Jack Nicholson. He's amazing. You just can't imagine anybody else. This this is role. his this is his um coup de gras. This I mean this, this is his his major moment, isn't it? This is I think is his greatest performance. I th- yeah, I mean a bit of kind of Stephen King objected to him because he said, Well, everyone's seen him in one flew over the cuckoo's nest and know that he always goes mad in his film, so they'll already see what's happening. But I mean the way that he he, he does it. Um the, the famous scene where his um smashing through the uh well, through, yeah, through, through the door with the axe now he was a volunteer fireman for a number of years and had been taught how to smash down doors so they had to keep for each take they had to get down thicker and thicker and thicker doors because he was going through them so quickly oh, right. <laughs> the, oh, bit where, I mean, the bit where he stuck his face through and went here's johnny it's from the johnny carson show yeah well all the english crew and Stanley Kubrick, who by this point had been living in the UK for 20 years, had never seen the Johnny Carson show and had no idea what, what the reference no, was. I, I didn't know. And, ve- and, ve- and very nearly went with another take until someone explained it. Yeah. And you, yeah. you look at it now, it's, it's iconic. He's fan- he's, 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 a, he's incredible in this film. Yeah. He, he's, he's, he's quintessential Jack, you know. I mean, he's always quite over the top in some of his performances. You know, he, he's one of those... Yeah, elaborate actors, isn't he? Um, he's very emotive. He's very um, yeah. expressive with his face, um, and there's something edgy about all of his performances. He yeah, always he is genuinely unhinged in this, and yeah. you are genuinely scared of him. Yeah. And the notion well, it's a father uh, and a mother and a, and a son, and there's a dysfunctionality that's latent. And when they go on the journey, things are still relatively okay, usual kind of couple. Yeah nothing more but the hotel has a, a malevolent presence and it exacerbates uh the problem that jack torrance's character has there's a notion yeah. that he's got an issue with alcohol from the past he might have harmed danny his son uh yeah. supposedly in a, a suggestion sort of, yeah sort of accidental but kind of just got out of hand moment of um disciplining when under the yeah and then of course he drinks in the bar and he's been isolated, and there's this malevolent presence, and all of that comes together to create a, an unhinged character becoming more and un- unhinged. And the way it unfolds, I think, is brilliantly told. Yeah, it's so skillfully done. The intercutting with the ghost sequences, the telekinesis with, uh, sorry, the uh, tele- telepathy with Danny, the way he's, there's the audacity of the scene really early in the film, the famous scene where the blood cuts through the side of a doorway, yeah. splashes the lift, down. Yeah. Into the uh, from the lift, yeah, and into the corridor, which comes up twice. It's towards the end of the film, but it's right at the near yeah. the beginning. Danny has a notion that I don't want to go there. Here's the shining, hotel. yeah. And he's got this shining, this image. He's got the foretelling 
of this exact scene, which seems to have manifested itself. Yeah. I, I like it. So the, 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 the famous bit where um, his wife goes to read his book and all it just says is pages upon pages upon pages of all work and may play makes Jack a dull boy. That... It's done in different formats and it's done as speech and different paragraphing. So he spent time shaping it into different forms, but it's the yeah. same words over and over again. He spent it is, and not only have they had someone type all that out. Yeah, it took ten in, months, didn't it? For international audiences, they had a local. It was done in their language in a, in a localized idiom. So for French, for German, for Spanish, oh, it was, yeah, it, 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 and and they were all printed up and typed in yeah. in, in a similar way. I know. I know talk Cooper, about attention to detail. I mean, they they employed a secretary, or it might have been two secretaries, to spend ten months typing all this out because uh, Shelley Duvall's character was grabbing stuff and flicking through it, and they did obviously yeah. a number of. But times. they had to do, they had to do that in several languages. So yeah, right? yeah, and 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 she obviously because yeah, they're all working no play. That's a that's a english thing. exactly in german it was it was a different idiom and in french it was a different idiom and in spanish yeah. it was a different idiom it was really oh, i didn't know that especially oh, i didn't and know they, 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 and they had to film it in all the different languages oh god i didn't know that but yeah, yeah i mean she because he famously takes so many takes and she was grappling with this paper and and the idea was wherever she grabbed and flicked through it had to show something authentic yeah. So they had to have it in depth. So every single ream of paper um, was, oh, every single individual paper in a ream was had correct information on it to fit the bill. Yeah. And um, she was also damaging some of the paper when they're doing the takes. So they had to get rid of some of the paper so that she's coming to it fresh the next time. Yeah. So, they, you know, there was extra paper on top of the stuff. Yeah. Madness. A whole year to talk stuff out hopefully they were filming other bits of the film while they were doing that yeah. I like to think, but there we go phil can we take a quick break before part two yeah uh, of course I, I want to talk about shining a bit more more to talk about and some correspondence is that all right yeah no problem at all back in a moment yeah, i mean the shining have very like a lot of it was very mixed reviews on release um, a lot of people saying Jack Nicholson's good and the film looks amazing, but um, it's a bit slow and a bit dull and a bit boring, which I just well, I can't really see, you know. No, I don't, I don't it's also, that. you know, it was nominated for uh, Golden Raspberries, <laughs> Razzies. As really? Well. Yeah, worst director and worst actress for Shelley Duvall. Oh, she's great in it. I mean, they, they put her through the mill, but her, yeah. her vulnerability and her fragility uh, and her almost hopelessness yeah. uh, is, is what makes that role so good. I think she's the, yeah. the best, most... I can't remember seeing her in any other films, but... She's been, she's been in a number of other bits and pieces, but yeah, I mean, she was, that's probably the best, most terrorised woman in a horror film role yeah. I think I've seen. I think it's great. Yeah. I think the kid's good in it. I think... Um, Every what I love about this film is I think every frame I, when I've watched it back every frame I remember it really clearly I remember yeah. quite a few of them just recalling it without watching and it. It's one of those ones that's fully kind of uh, gone pop culture, so it's got the Simpsons version. Um, yeah, there's the Slipknot video for Spit It Out. Have you ever seen Ready Player One, Steven Spielberg yeah. film, where they basically rebuild the set completely yeah. for, for for a task that they have to do yeah. in that film? And when you just when you just watch that film, you think, 
when it was shining again now after watching this. Yeah, just yeah. watching it again. I, I just, it's, it's, it's got that dreamlike quality, hasn't it? You feel like you've woken from a dream and yeah. you, you're seeing the film. You've got the famous, as you said, the Here's Johnny scene, which, yeah, just him pressed against um, an, an open slat of the door with the two bits of slat next to it. And he's poking his head through. It's yeah. quite interesting. When they filmed that shot, by the way, it was in, because um, if you remember, he breaks through. Yeah. the bedroom door she's already locked in the bathroom so he wanders around realizes she's in there then starts acting yeah. the second door and you had the um you had garrett brown the steady can guy was filming that shot uh, and it was a normal sized bathroom it wasn't a distorted space uh mm. for filmmaking purposes it was that small yeah. so he was he was in there at close quarters with all this this doorway getting splintered and it was all flying around his head he didn't have any goggles on or anything like that and he's filming this shot saying god again there's no health and safety here no. and also they have the scene where they uh, sorry the shot where they they frame it directly in front of the door so as he breaks through the doorway you see splints fly off and the axe flies straight towards the camera and yeah. at close quarters and he said it was really hard not to flinch but he managed to do it yeah. you just had to because otherwise you've screwed the shot up and you just got to do it again um but it, they really really did some incredible stuff in that space yeah. you've got the the tennis ball scene he's throwing the ball yeah. around and it onto the carpet that took 40 that's, un, that's unsettling as well isn't it when you just see it's bouncing along yeah, yeah. And of course, the bath scene that um, one of our correspondents mentioned earlier—the uh, the shower curtain and the bath. There's a woman, yeah. a beautiful young woman. Again, there's this naked female beauty yeah. motif in in Kubrick films. But Nicholson's character goes up to see what's going on because he's he's heard from his wife that something's happened to Danny in that yeah. room. Goes up to the room and this beautiful woman steps out of the bath, pulls the shower curtain aside, steps up and kind of goes into a seduction mode. And then it turns into an old granny who's rot, who's literally a f- flesh is rotting away. Yeah. And it's terrorizing, uh, sorry, terrifying. And um, apparently the actress that played that was quite uninhibited with doing that role, even though, you know, she's an, a, a woman of a certain yeah. age. I don't know who she was, yeah. 75 at least, I'd imagine, playing uh, naked with loads of rot, makeup on her body and obviously you know she's got a, a 75 yeah and she was completely naked in the scene she said she apparently she was completely uninhibited by doing it okay <laughs> always good to be confident exactly it certainly is yeah but so I, yeah another film that had a lot of cuts made to it um there was a there was a kind of a hospital scene at the end uh that got cut out there were a lot of exterior shots that got cut out um, there was a another scene in the ballroom that that got cut out to sort of bring it down to what it is, and I'm pretty sure that all went in the fire when uh, when Stanley died, unfortunately. Um, the other the other stuff, I suppose, they also had the notion of the ghosts or what we think of the ghosts in this film. Um, you see the ballroom scene with all the twenties people. You see the barman, and um, and then as you said, the butler turns up, and the butler is an incarnation of Grady, who's as as a more yeah. killed his family. But then there's a scene in the toilet we mentioned with the garish, garish sort of red um decor. And Grady says is talking to Nichols uh, to Torrance uh, Torrance and saying, um, 
you know, you, I've always been here. You've always been here. You've always been the caretaker, this kind of stuff. So there's this notion of... Well, yeah, and then you get the photograph at the end. Yes, exactly, where he's pictured in a, a group Party photo. in 1921, right at the front. That's invoked a lot of discussion. I haven't seen it. There's a, there's a, there's a documentary film all about The Shining. I didn't yeah, know. I mean, it, it's, it's suggestive, yeah. isn't it? It leaves it open-ended, but you think, hang on, these guys are inhabiting the, the real world now, yet apparently both of them at some point have existed in the 20s yeah. and there's the notion of repetition of horrific people or horrific events whatever yeah. whatever else has happened but um it's based on the native american burial ground is where the hotel in the story has been built isn't it so it's haunted. it's always one of those it's the same in poor guy and it's the same in is it the frighteners i can't remember it's a, that, that, that's all that's a bit of a trope yeah. that they use but yeah i think pet cemetery pet cemetery it? as well yeah that's right yeah and and the other thing is that um in stephen king i've not read the novel but in his novel apparently um the they've got they don't really have a maze but they've got topiary animals that come to life so elephants and things oh, like okay. that not I and they are part of the ostensible haunted house or haunted yeah. hotel, uh, scenario. Um, on the subject of the maze, though, and that was a construct of Kubrick's, um, brilliant scenes. We mentioned the, heli- the, the, the high-angle helicopter shots of them driving towards the hotel for the interview. Yeah. And then when it comes to the maze, there's a scene where, uh, before things have gone wrong, uh, Shelley DeVal's character, Wendy, is walking with Danny, and um, and they decide, right, let's go to this maze and play in the maze. So they go into the maze during the daytime. Jack has apparently been doing some of his writing and he's getting bored and restless and walking about. And he wanders through all these huge, vast spaces and finds this this alcove of one of the main rooms, living rooms, um, where there's a, a, a big model of the of the maze. And yeah. he's, so it intercuts between these uh, the mother and child going into the maze and Jack looking down on the model of the maze. And then, sure enough, what happens is you get these enormously high aerial shots, which apparently were taken from a, from a really high, high-rise block. And they, oh, okay. down, and they made um, a small segment of the maze, the central bit of the maze. Yeah. But the real actors are being filmed from a really enormous height. And again, oh, it's a zoom okay. shot. Again, it's Sandy Kubrick with his zooms. Yeah. Down onto the characters and it intercuts with Jack Nicholson looking down at these characters. Is he, is he looking at the characters? Yeah, 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 yeah. So cleverly That's, done. Yeah. And what they did, they, they, they um, superimposed in somehow or other um, the rest of the maze. So they filmed the central bit, but they didn't build the entire thing because it was yeah. next to the council block. They must have done a map painting or something. Yeah. 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 So some interesting shots, but I love that juxtaposition stuff. The ghost characters, though, yeah, I was going to say the um, the other thing is, of course, Grady becomes an important character in this story because he meets Jack. He talks about, oh yeah, he's the only one, only one he talks to, really. Yeah, yeah. we're only in, we're or the barman as well, but yeah. And um, Wendy's managed to overcome Jack and lock him in the kitchen store um, at one point, but Jack's able to get out by all accounts because. Grady has turned up and unlocked the door. So this notion of the ghost being able to actually yeah. transcend the parallel universe to the actual... Yeah. There's, there's an ambiguity to that and the tennis ball scene and a few others, which make it really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's a brilliant film. It stands up. I think it's brilliant. Multiple yeah. it, is, it is number one. Um, I felt quite sorry for poor old Mike Flanagan, who's a brilliant filmmaker. He got the job of doing Doctor Sleep, the sequel, and he had to try and do a sequel to both the book and the film 
it was all right. It wasn't amazing. Uh, I mean, his TV shows are better. If you ever seen Midnight Mass or Ming of Hill House, they're great. Um, and yeah. he had another one called The Midnight Club recently, which is very, very good as well. Yeah. It's um, Hugh McGregor's in the film, isn't it? Doctor Sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He plays plays Danny Torrance. Yeah. Kind of grow, grown up. Yeah. Oh, it's okay. Good. It's not amazing. It's not essential. It's not bad either. It's it's six out of ten. You know. I've not seen it, but there we go. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Right, going to talk about the rest of Kubrick's films in a minute, but first of all, some correspondence. Chris from Worthing has said, my top three, he's gone with a three, okay, yeah. for, uh, would be FMJ, which I'm pretty sure is Full Metal Jacket, Strange Love and Shining. And we have Ian from uh, Hampshire has said, eyes wide shut, brackets, for a friend, close brackets, <laughs> <laughs> um, Full Metal Jacket, Spartacus, Brackets, I'm Spartacus, no I'm See, Spartacus. we haven't chosen any of those three. No, yeah. we haven't. That's an interesting choice. Yeah, yeah, so there we go. So, um, so that's a bit of correspondence on there. Um, and um, I was going to say, there's, there's so many other films, well, not so many others, there's some other films we haven't talked so, about. So, yeah, I mean, but for me personally, I had Full Metal Jacket at number six, hmm. uh, The Killing at number seven, uh, Spartacus yeah. at number eight. Yeah, and then below that, I kind of had Eyes Wide Shut at nine and Barry Lyndon at ten. I must admit, I didn't really enjoy Barry Lyndon. It was okay. It went on a bit. I mean, the, the accusations of boring and slow that are levelled against a lot of his films, um, I did feel that in Barry Lyndon. I didn't just didn't like any of the characters. It was gorgeous and beautiful to look at. I, but it, Ooh, you've only seen it once. You've got to see it again. Yeah, that's <laughs> very true. That's very yeah. true. I, I I've sat that. through Eyes Wide Shut twice now, obviously yeah. 20 years ago and again um, a, a few weeks ago. Um, it was all right. It wasn't yeah. great. It was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'd go along with that. I think that's that's fair enough, isn't it? I, yeah, I mean, I, I think I enjoyed Barry Lyndon uh, more the second time as well. Same with all the other all the other films I've seen. So it's it's a difficult one. It's, yeah, it's quite tricky. Yeah. Um, I've got to say, with Full Metal Jacket, I think. Um, See, that's quite an iconic film as well. That's got quite a few things in it that you, yeah, you know, that, that have I, kind of been taken on by popular culture. The whole, the Marine drill sergeant and the the singing, and but it's yeah. a strange film because it doesn't really have a plot. They go and do a bit of training. They go to Vietnam and have a bit. We say a bit of training. It's forty minutes of the film, if not training. more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they go to Vietnam, and there's yeah. basically just one scene that sort of that follows them. I mean, yeah. um, Matthew Modine in that is as close to a likable character as you've had in any, any Stanley Kubrick film. It, it is a good film. Um, it just feels a bit, I don't know, unfinished. I'm not, I'm not quite yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean, famously, they. It's got that kind of like 2001 documentary feel about it that you're watching something actually happening and not actually watching a kind of a journey with the characters, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, Jay Leomi, who plays the drill sergeant, a uh, drill instructor, it's brutal, and the notion brilliant. is yeah. how they have to be. But yeah, there's lots of dry sardonic. He plays the same character in The Frighteners by Peter Jackson. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it? yeah. This sort of spiky sardonic wit, and you know, he says, "I'm not racist. I, I have, um, I have yeah, even disregard for everyone." That he said, "Yeah." Some of the stuff <laughs> is questionable, but yeah, he I says, think oh, he was quite a lot improvised as well. Yeah. Um, some brilliant scenes, and you've got the again. You've got a little bit like with Clockwork Orange. You've got a character who's a bit dim, uh, who's this big, sort of slightly blob yeah. shaped guy. Who's it's a bit Zanofrio, yeah, yeah. 
uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, who plays, um, I think his name is Lawrence. What's his actual name? Lawrence? I can't remember. Something. Um, yeah. uh, some, something like that. But he's, he's, all he is is Private Pile to me, yeah. Yeah, Private Pile. And, he's, he's and played, anything that Vincent D'Onofrio has turned up in since, you just see Private Pile. Yeah, exactly. It's such a definitive role. Um, yeah. He's basically bullied to oblivion. And um, in the end, the punishment isn't getting punished um, on his own for doing something wrong. He starts to, uh, the, the drill sergeant starts to punish everyone else when he does yeah. something wrong. So he gets bullied by everyone and he ends up killing himself in a pretty powerful scene. Yeah. Uh, and it's just about the, uh, it, I don't know what the point is necessarily because obviously it's brutality, but at the same time, it's necessary brutality to sharpen people up to be Marines, yeah. I suppose you could say. Um, and then you get people seemingly needlessly dying. There's the one or two characters do foolish things, disregard orders. One of the senior captains is killed, and then someone else has to take over. Matthew Medine, isn't it? And uh, no, the um, the other guy. Um, yeah. And it's, it's similar to that Whiplash film. It's like how far can you push people to make yeah. them great before it becomes genuine? Yeah, it's very similar. abuse. Yeah. It's really similar to that. That's a good analogy, actually. And you've also got the incongruous nature of Matthew Bedeen's got this. He, he's he's from some sort of journalistic background. So after he goes through the drill training, he gets appointed to the journalism corps. Yeah. You know, like public announcements and um, communications and things like that. And he's quite dissenting to his uh, to his to the general or whatever it is that's in charge of him. Um, and he's got he's got a CMD badge on, and then yeah. he's to kill on his helmet. And there's one yeah. of the sergeants in the field when he goes on a visit says, uh, "Were you? What are you trying to say here?" So, uh, I don't know. Oh, do you know? <laughs> so yeah. something is some like the Jung uh, Jungianism or something like that. Yeah. Oh wow! It's uh, lots of interesting scenes, lots of iconic scenes. They filmed famously lots of the, the Vietnam Docklands, wasn't it? It was all filmed. Uh, no, it Vietnam. was at, yeah, it was at um, Beckton in East London. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah um i've got a couple of problems with it i found the scene where there's two scenes with prostitutes in it and i found those really weird there's a scene where you yeah. see when they first finish the drill stuff and they go to vietnam it, it, the, the first the very first mm. you see of vietnam or, when they're negotiating yeah yeah it's this um woman walking along um who's yeah tries to negotiate with these two soldiers um, who I thought looked like a bit of a lady boy, and actually the the other prostitute later I thought yeah. looked like a lady boy. I don't know if that was a deliberate thing or not. Anyway, they are women, but um, yeah. There's a scene where while the negotiations going on, a guy comes up and nicks the camera of one of the guys, and then does a few sort of like martial arts moves for some reason. Yeah, and goes off on the back of a bike. I thought that was really weird, and the the guy's camera stole and does the same moves. Yeah, in a mimic. I'm not quite sure what the hell that no. is. It looked really awful. I, I yeah. was, and then there was another scene later where there's um, they're trying to negotiate at, uh, at another scene and there's a scene of the black guy, isn't there, and talking about yeah. his prowess and that kind of stuff. And I don't know, I just thought, I thought they'd say... It's to- interesting. It's, it's good. It just, yeah, it, it, it didn't do enough for me compared to some of the other films. In the end, same for me, yeah. Lolita, interesting. We've, we've talked about it a bit. You know, the un, un the un um, adaptable novel to the screen was adapted, and they, you know, the whole publicity was around. Oh God, they've done it. James Mason's great. She's great casting. She's kind of attractive enough to be feasible, but she's also got a, a 
kind of like a wolfy adolescence yeah to her and there's something about her behind the eyes so i think she works really well in that that teasing role yeah i think it kind of it works pretty well and peter sellers plays um what's his name uh cruelty who's this sort of elaborate obviously rich bohemian arty writer character writes plays who sits along in the shadows throughout the film it's it's interesting he he kind of dips in and out of Lolita's life and it turns out he has a bigger part to play than we think. Yeah. And the beginning and end of the film centre around James Mason's character as the, um, as the, uh, the lodger who becomes stepdad. Yeah. Uh, uh, and his interaction with, with Quilty at the beginning and then return to at the end of the film. Um, so, so the, it's the future and then they return to the future and it's, um, uh, it's an interesting scene. I think, uh, again, Peter Sellers, excellent in this role of a, a character who starts putting on voices, the character does. Yeah. It's it's kind of interesting. He sort of mocks James Mason. Um, it's a curious film. It's quite long. Again, I didn't like it the first yeah. time. I really liked it the second time. Shelley Winters as the mother of Lolita as well is really good. She's always good in those kind of roles. Yeah. Slightly vampish. Um, she's a, a widow who's looking for love and she's kind of like almost vampishly um, coveting this new lodger, James Mason yeah. story. Interesting film. Killer's Kiss we talked about. Eyes Wide Shut. Don't know if you want to say anything about that. It was interesting. Um, Bottom of my list, to be honest, of the of the main films. Um, yeah, it, it, the subject matter didn't really interest me that much. The, the, the performances were quite interesting, but yeah, it's it did, I, I, I prefer it when he does war. Yeah, <laughs> what can I yeah, say? That's his most common theme, isn't it? And I, I think, um, yeah, it's bottom of my list of the main films because I didn't engage with it on the same level. He's obviously making points about love, fidelity, passion, attraction, compass, <laughs> all that sort of stuff, and loads and loads of female nudity. Yeah. Uh, Sidney Pollock's good, actually. He's really good in his role as the yeah, yeah, he's great, well-connected friend who um, yeah. Who plays a significant part? He's a bit dodgy, yeah. Um, I like those scenes, especially the scene after the event. Uh, it was quite interesting. Barry yeah. Lyndon, famous. I said it's very long. I mean, that film is incredible. I didn't really like Ryan O'Neill in it very much either, I've got to be honest. He's a very sort of stiff, kind of static sort of character, doesn't he? I think yeah. that's what it is about this film, he, um, he, he set all this up with loads of slow zooms in and out all the way through the story. Yeah. He wanted to, I think you're going to talk about Napoleon and stuff like that in a minute, but yeah. he wanted to shoot Napoleon. And this was kind of his, um, almost like his compensation. Film yeah. He had these shots of battle movements and things going on, or just marching, really. And um, it's about this character who's a little bit, not particularly clever, but he struts about trying to socially climb. And so he's going into these different environments. And they filmed it in Ireland, but it's supposed to be somewhere in Northern they Europe. They filmed it in England and Scotland yeah. as well, I think. Yeah. Scotland, yeah. And um, and essentially, you've got these enormous wide shots, these beautiful country houses. It's um, 18th century. Um, and it's pretty much like all of the shots are like paintings. And he, yeah. he uses a camera which makes the depth of field distorted. So everything feels tighter and closer in than it should do, it should be. So a lot of the shots look like Gainsborough paintings. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen any Peter Greenaway films. I don't wish them on you. They're very... Not, not my bag. Very boring, very pretentious. Beautiful, yeah. but awful. I, I find them awful. This guy, Kubrick, in this film, kicks the 
shit out of the later films to come. Yeah. Like Peter Greenaway. He's far better at doing those shots, beautifully framed shots that look like paintings. He knocks the socks off of Greenaway later down the line. Um, beautiful film, 75, isn't it? Oh, it is beautiful. I just didn't care about any of the characters and I didn't enjoy watching them on screen. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, the only other thing I was going to mention was, um, We've got to talk about Spartacus. There's so much to talk about with this film. Yeah, it's a great film. Shall we get into that? It's, it's a different one because that was the only film that he made where he was... The original director was sacked in the first week. Anthony and Mann, Kirk yeah. Douglas basically insisted, you bring, I've made Pass the Glory with him, you bring Stanley Kubrick in and he'll do... Yeah. He'll make this film. But everything, all the, all the work, all the sort of... The research and the production and the getting involved in the costumes and the planning this and the planning every single part of the production, it was all done for him. So he was very much just a hired gun that got came in to do somebody else's job for them. Okay. So it still doesn't quite feel like one of his films, but and it's the only one I, I think I think it's the only one of his films that feels sort of dated in a, in a way because of that. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but it. it I mean, the, the whole gladiator school bit is fantastic. You know, that's yeah. great. Training, the scenes, the love scenes as well. All, all of that stuff's pretty good. Yeah. Um, this does this has the overture and the intermission in it, by the way. We yeah. should mention that as well. Um, you've got um, an enormous cast of, as you said, well, Anthony Mann, who, who was filming the original shots, they filmed the first scenes first, uh, which were cutaways of North Africa, and they're chiselling away on mountainsides, and you've got these Romans, and it's hard labour for slavery, basically, and Spartacus's character, which is based on a real character yeah. who people don't really know that much about, but apparently he, yeah. he caused a revolution and an uprising by peasants. So that's essentially what this was as well, or an uprising by slaves, I should say. Yeah. Um, and um, so those opening scenes are shot by Anthony Mann, who is famous for American outback stuff and rugged westerns yeah. and all that kind of thing. A really good director. For some reason or other, it wasn't working. They they liked the shots that they'd done, but they weren't happy with them going forwards. Kirk Douglas was a, a key producer on the film and yeah. was the film star in the eponymous role. But um, he, as you said, he wanted to get um, he wanted to get Kubrick in. Based on I don't pre- think him and Kubrick even got on that well. He they just, didn't know. They had a lot of falling out. They're both yeah, strong. But, but he recognised the talent. Yeah, yeah and they, they stuck with it through the film. And they had eight significant names in this cast as well. You've got Kirk Douglas, obviously, himself. Yeah. You've got some serious heavyweight British theatrical talent. Peter, yeah, Peter O'Toole. You've got, no, no, you've got uh, Lawrence Olivier. Yeah. You've got um, Peter Ustinov. Peter Ustinov, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've got Charles Lawton, who are all playing Roman Senator. Yeah. Uh, of significance. Uh, well, Peter Ustinov plays a, a, a lower, lower ranked dignitary yeah. uh, within Roman law. And then you've got John Gavin as Caesar, and you've got um, uh, you've got Tony Curtis who comes in as a slave. And there's a whole scene about homosexuality. <laughs> it's about it's one of the few kind of non-Tony Curtis comedies that you can actually take seriously. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. He comes in as a slave who's been given as a gift by one of the other people. And um, by, by actually the guy, John Dole, who's yeah. uh, in Rope as the scheming, uh, nasty piece yeah. of work. Uh, he's in it as one of the, the lower-ranked um, Romans as well. And 
he's gifted these slaves and one of them is Tony Curtis and Laurence Olivier there's a scene in the bath where there's there's these um, analogies talking about snails and oysters you know and basically it's talking about Laurence Olivier swinging both ways yes I'll seduce Tony Curtis who's his slave anyway and there's a scene where he's talking about Rome which is his only other true love and he he looks out onto the uh, onto the scenery and is talking away, and Tony Curtis's his character's bucking off because <laughs> he's yeah. got nothing to do with that. But it's interesting how they that that was the Catholic Church didn't want that scene in, and they took it out for a while and put it back in later. Oh, okay. And they also cut some other scenes as well. I think, um, in fact, in Lolita as well. By the way, there's a scene where they're making love, and he's looking at the picture of Lolita while shagging yeah. them. The, the mother and they had to reduce the number of shots in that so the, yeah. the Catholic church had a part to play in editing back in the day of course but anyway going back to Spartacus yeah you've got all the, the heavyweight talent and you've got Charles Lawton Lawrence Olivier did not like each other and they yeah. against each other then you've got Charles Lawton and Peter Yusnoff who did like each other but again they were sparring off in a yeah. and you've got I, 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 the spectacle so I mean the sheer number of extras that they employed for it it's it's it, it's got to be a record isn't it I don't think I've ever seen sort of crowds of people in any other film and they were really there not computer generated you know what was interesting they didn't actually have any battle scenes scripted major battle scenes until the filming started with Kubrick so it's all the greater of the achievement that yeah he, he you know orchestrated some battle scenes that weren't even part of the concept yeah and they, all of the main stuff, which is all of the stuff at the end, um, where it all comes to a head, was all filmed in Spain. And apparently one of the producers, I can't remember his name, said he had to negotiate with Castro, uh, with um, Franco, who's uh, a yeah. you know, military dis- dictatorship in Spain yeah. at the time. So they wanted to use the Spanish military forces because they could follow the procedures and the marching in time and all the other yeah. stuff. Yeah, straight off without any, any training, obviously. So um, they had to negotiate and essentially a donation to Franco's wife's favourite charity, which was to support orphan children of military soldiers who had died oh, okay. in this oppressive regime. But, you know, those... Yeah. And they had, to, they had to agree to do that in order to get permission to use the Spanish military, in yeah. scenes, which is interesting. But um, you've got Herbert Lom in there. Oh, as well. yeah. Dreyfus. One of Salish, Salish, Talking about Peter Sarris. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who's this kind of swarthy... Uh, exotic looking kind of uh, guy from the Middle East somewhere and uh, I'm not even sure where Silesia is but anyway he's apparently one of the one of the negotiators isn't he for yeah. them there's double crosses and all sorts of other stuff going on um, it's 55 minutes in that um, Spartacus escapes and then of course he basically inspires endless slaves all along the way to revolt against the regime. Yeah. You've got uh, Verinia as the love interest of Spartacus, Jean Simmons, who's a slave girl uh, from Britannia, who's been captured and put into slavery. Um, you've got um, the, the uh, Silesian portrayal. We've mentioned the Silesian pirates. Yeah. That's, that's that scene. Olivier, there's an interesting thing about Olivier. Apparently, for all his great acting and his oratories and all that stuff, he apparently was quite inhibited when he spoke publicly as himself. So in Spartacus, he's put a fake nose on. Which oh, okay. I'd have thought that made him look more Roman, whatever that means. Yeah. So just having a small amount of disguise from his normal face allowed him to then inhabit the role and be a brilliant actor. But if he just didn't have enough of a facade, he wasn't that confident. And when he gave public speeches later on as himself, yeah. he apparently was, it was in no way 
the same impact as he had oh, in, okay. uh, and in film with with all of his great roles. I mean, he could be very hammy, he could be over the top, but he was a brilliant actor and he's superb. Yeah. I think it's one of his best roles. Ustinov as well. I heard him on the yeah. commentary. So impressive. He talked about um, the mass versus the individual and Marxism about being about the mass first to control the individuals and how he thinks um, from his own disposition, favouring the individual as the important heart of democracy. Um, and that is the best way to a, a well-functioning uh, community. He said this was an easy film to engage with because that's what the sensibilities of the films promote. And um, so it's kind of like it's it was interesting because Dalton Trumbo was the screenwriter for this. Yeah. He blacklisted through McCarthyism. And this was the first film where he was credited as his under his own name. Yeah. And they fought for that as well. It wasn't fully unblacklisted, but they yeah. it became more and more obvious that he was doing the, the main work. And so yes. he enjoyed that element of the, the notion of freedom as freedom yeah, as definitely. That stuff, and John Wayne, in in complete contrast politically, of course, he was famously very right wing and quite disagreeable, to be honest, unpleasant in his views. Um, he despised the film and took out huge adverts protesting against it, which uh, makes me like it all the more. Yeah, definitely. Um, Jean Simmons, very very British British actress, played the main role. Um, a beautiful looking woman, and. Yeah, photogenic and and well established and all the rest of it, but she wasn't the first choice by far. They don't okay. know people for the role. It was still deemed even when she was given it whether she was the right person for it because she looked a bit too, I don't know, just too British or something. Yeah. And apparently they were after Ingrid Bergman. Um, she was offered the role. Um, I think it was Kirk Douglas who was seriously coveting her for the role. Yeah. And um. Uh, couldn't couldn't get her in. She thought it was going to be a bit edgy, the story. And Kirk okay. Douglas also wanted to get Jean Moreau in, famous oh, French. Okay. And she he was trying to get her for ages, but due to scheduling and maybe some reticence, um, she didn't go for it. So that was interesting. Um, Technorama, the whole filming yeah. process, incredible. They used negatives and they they had to. Yeah, it's very colourful film, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, there's all sorts of... We won't go into it too long to talk about, but lots of technical details and technical issues. And a lot of the restoration of films in the modern era are centred around the, these kind of films were the most endangered of the species because of the... I think the way they, they projected the colour and the, the film. Oh, OK. Um, apparently, they're the most threatened, or they were at the time of the commentary anyway. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um and you've got Woody Strode in it. We talked about Westerns in a previous episode. Yeah. A famous black actor, very tall guy, very athletic. He plays one of the gladiators in it, doesn't he? Who yeah. in Spartacus. That's then, the best bit. Yeah. He backs out of killing him and then tries to attack yeah. the Russian nobles, which is brilliant. Superb scene. A uh, good actor. He's superb. Yeah. Good. Um, one, one bit of trivia as well. The guy who's the main sort of, I suppose, the foreman for training the gladiators and all those scenes at Peter Paliatis' yeah. uh, um, location. And you've got a guy called Charles McGraw, who's the guy training them all up. Yeah. And there's a scene where he provokes Spartacus and, and it leads to the riot that leads to them all escaping. And then the story goes on from there. But they're in the kit, they're in the effectively the dining area of the gladiators when he provokes Spartacus and Spartacus drowns him in the soup. Yeah. When they were filming that, apparently there's a scene where he's in there for quite a while and he comes up and then goes back in. Apparently, when he went back in, <laughs> Doug just broke his jaw on the side of the container. Blimey. And they carried on filming, and that's the scene they used. 
Um, and uh, yeah, he broken his jaw on the side of the suit container. Um, and there's another limb or another injury as well, which is right at the end of the film where Tony Curtis's character, who's escaped as well and has joined up with Spartacus's forces. And they are literally the last two left when the battle heroically ends in failure in the end. And they're taken back to Rome. And Laurence Olivier's character, Crassus, knows yeah. one of Spartacus and the other one, of course, he already knows uh, from um, having been in Rome. And he forces them to fight each other. And they both try to kill each other in order to spare themselves, spare each other from the alternative, yeah. which is to be crucified, slow, painful death. And there's a scene where they're about to fight, and what, just beforehand they're talking, they're sitting talking while they're chained up to a cart outside the arena. And Tony Curtis is sitting with his right leg stretched straight, and he's leaning with his left leg up, and then they're chatting away. Apparently he had to sit like that because he'd broken his leg playing tennis. <laughs> That is so Tony Curtis. Yeah, how they filmed the battle sequence. I think they used more sh- close-up shots, and then they used a, an extra. Uh, they used a stuntman for the yeah on shots. That's the way they worked out of that. But yeah, some good bits of trivia around this film. Yeah, Lots yeah. Of that, but um, we won't go into too much detail. It's already going on quite a long time, isn't it? Otherwise, um, but yeah, all the stuff about film preservation and deterioration of the film stock. They had a lot of film prints, and they had yeah. to use those to restore. Then- on because the negatives were getting used there's so many prints going out it was wearing out the original negatives and yeah it's okay. interesting they were using technorama and um 70 mil prints there were all sorts of stuff going on with that um and as we said it's got overture and intermission as well um also rolling, rolling bundles of fire in the in yeah the exactly that must have been a kubrick thing there but yeah it wasn't, it wasn't historically accurate but it was an interesting concept it great yeah for a good look, didn't it? Um, and also, there was one other injury thing, by the way. Laurence Olivier was there was a scene on a horse um, where he was um, being asked, "Look, can you sit on this ladder because you'll get a better trajectory? It will make yeah better." And he was going, "No, no, no." And there were twenty takes, and eventually he was persuaded to sit on the ladder, and then he fell off the ladder and he received <laughs> medical attention. <laughs> Whoops! Yeah, so never mind on that one. Um, and um, I think, yeah, that's, that kind of sums it up for my stuff. I mean, so, yeah, the other thing I was going to talk about was uh, his unrealised projects, which, which is quite interesting because he spent a lot of time on some of them. He didn't make that many films, but in some cases he spent a couple of years prepping for films that never actually happened. Um, one film he did a lot of work on was AI, Artificial Intelligence, yeah. which eventually got made by Steven Spielberg. Yeah, he, he gave it to Spielberg, didn't he? he yeah, that was a collaboration he had with the science fiction writer Brian Aldiss. Um, throughout the 80s and 90s, they were working on that. And in the end, he, I think Spielberg sort of said they had many evenings, hours and hours and hours on the phone discussing it because he thought, that, that that subject matter better, better match uh, Spielberg's sensibilities. Yeah. Uh, one film uh, that we, we briefly alluded to earlier, Napoleon. So yeah. after he made 2001, uh, sort of in the late 60s, he planned to, to make Napoleon. He spent two years researching. He scouted all over Europe. He cast Audrey Hepburn as Empress Josephine and Jack Nicholson as Napoleon. <laughs> Love to have seen that. Um, <laughs> They were well into pre-production when MGM cancelled it because uh, Waterloo came out and completely bombed and they thought, well, that's it. It's not going to happen. Um, and another film, Orion Papers, which is uh, about the Nazis, um, that was cancelled 
um, because it depressed Kubrick so much. And also uh, Schindler's List came out. And Schindler's List covered and, a lot of the same, the same similar material. That's the um, Arian Papers, isn't it? Yeah, the Arian Papers, yeah. Um, Focus Pendulum, the uh, book by uh, Umberto Eco, so um, the, no the, the novelist, um, he absolutely detested the adaptation of The Name of the Rose with uh, Sean Connery and Christian Slater. Um, and he instructed his publisher to never sell the film rights to any of his books ever again. I mean, oh, cool. Kubrick would like to have made that, but, the, but they couldn't get hold of the rights. And um, finally, what, another one that I'm quite glad never got made. Uh, in the 1960s, I think the Beatles uh, approached Kubrick to direct them in an adaptation of Lord of the Rings. Good grief. Uh, and Kubrick kind of said that I, I you know, that's too, uh, too popular a book for me to take on. No. Yeah, that's a bit too much, isn't it? Yeah. Do you, sorry, do you say One Eyed Jacks? Do you mention that? I've forgotten if you said no, that. No, I didn't know. Yeah, because apparently he was going to work on that as well. And it's, uh, oh, okay. He, he, passed up on that one yeah so yeah it's, it's interesting how those those, those we, we we will get a film version of napoleon either this year or next year we'll get the ridley scott one so mm. well i mean it's you know 50 years on but we still haven't had the kind of well there have been a french adaptations but we haven't kind of had the, the yeah, big blockbuster, blockbuster one i know it would be it'd be interesting thing to see before wacky on disc i've still not seen it yet it's a silent classic um for the 20s i think it is but yeah um but yeah yeah have a go um a few bits more correspondence phil um andy cool. Bashman brighton has gone spartacus the shining 2001 paths of glory full metal jacket um and uh what else have we got uh in no particular order says david from bexel on sea uh the killing barry linden dr strange love the shining and Paths of Glory. Um, There's a lot of love for Paths of Glory. I like that. I, th I, yeah. I, I thought I would be on my own in that. Quite clearly not. Yeah, I, I, I'm surprised a little bit as well. I, I, yeah, I thought it might have been a, a lot less. But um, yeah, there, there we have it. And um, what else was there? There was um, also... Um, was another one? I think there was another one. There, there maybe not, actually. Let me just double check. No, that was it, actually. That's all from the okay. correspondence. Think unless anybody. Oh, hang on, I've got uh, one other thing as well. Yes, so I've got. Uh, do you remember um, from my university course, Adam English? Yes, works in the film industry. He's a colorist and grader. Um, been doing it for many years now. Um, he's worked on films such as Love Actually, uh, Tomb Raider, Cold Mountain, all of the Attenborough flagship BBC stuff. Yeah, loads and loads of other stuff beyond. Um, he's a big Kubrick fan, so I've got to ask him as well. And he's come back with. Clockwork Orange at number five, Doctor Strangelove at number four, Barry Lyndon at number three, which, by the way, is also famous for all the candlelit shots. We didn't yeah. mention them earlier. Um, famously, like, thousands of candles to yes. a strange luminous light. Anyway, he's got Clockwork Orange at five, Strangelove at four, Barry Lyndon at three, The Shining at two, and 2001 at number They're one. Similar to us, yeah. Yeah. And, swap, um, out, swap out Barry Lyndon for Pass of Glory, yeah. Yeah. He, he also said kind of tempted to put Barry Lyndon at number two but the battle scene gets quite a bit wrong which is annoying he's he's so funny he's such an analyst for military details in films okay fair enough um, Michael Deming who's in London also from my university actually um he's gone for a clockwork orange at five paths of glory at four Lolita at three the shining at two and 2001 at number one so a lot of love for that at number one which is yeah. 
interesting as well. Um, so, yes, that's a couple of other bits of correspondence. And oh, I think that, thank you very much for uh, getting in touch. Absolutely. And that rounds it up, really, doesn't it? So it yeah. only remains for us to talk about what we're doing next. We want to yes. focus back to actors. There's so many actors out there. We haven't done a huge amount on actors, have we, no. so far? We've done Tom Hanks, Francis McDormand. Lauren um, Hardy. Lauren Hardy, I guess, yeah, as well as filmmakers, they were actors, weren't they? Um, I think that's more or less it, barring maybe something we've forgotten. Yeah. So we're going to go with a, a movie classic actor. We've We had a short list. And we've decided in the end to go for one of the classics of the 30s, 40s and 50s, uh, James Cagney. Yeah. Phil, do you know much about James Cagney so far? I know he's by reputation more than Phil. I've got a lot of films to watch. (laughs) Discovery. Discovery. Yeah, I love that. I love that. It's it's interesting. Famous for his gangster stuff and and various other bits besides as well. So it'll be interesting to see how you, where you place everything. Uh, Might not get to the musicals. We shall see. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, Yankee Doodle Dandy is kind of that. I have that in there, Phil. I'll be disappointed if you don't. (laughs) You're going to be disappointed. (laughs) so listen if if you've if you've not seen any kubrick films for some reason please do check them out if you have and you were disappointed please check them out again because they are better the more you watch them it's like a good wine and all that stuff exactly it doesn't only if you've started tasting it that doesn't really work as an analogy does it never mind but um Honestly, watch them, watch them again. They're fantastic. If you ha- if you do know them and you haven't seen them for ages, hopefully we've reignited your taste for yes. all again anyway. Um, and uh, just to summarise our fives again, in case people have forgotten. So at number five, you had? I had a number five, a chocolate orange. No, I had something similar. <laughs> I think it was a clockwork orange, but it might have been a chocolate one. I, 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 at first, I wasn't quite sure what a chocolate orange a clockwork orange actually meant uh, and until i kind of actually went and looked it up and it's a, it's a, a kind of description of um alex's character after he's had the um yeah had, 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 the, had the aversion therapy he's kind of clockwork on the uh on the inside and yeah kind of yeah. normal on, on the outside he has he basically has chronic nausea whenever he starts to go through the normal reflexes that he would have as an evil guy wanting to rape or attack or kill people he has a, a nausea that basically immobilizes him doesn't it yeah yeah i had um space odyssey at uh, four i had past glory at four which you had at three at three and then yeah. i had at number three uh, 2001 one and then we have matching one and two for the first time. Ever. Strange number two and the shining, classic, classic shining at number one. Brilliant. And Thank where you for that... listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Where will the shining feature when we do horrors of a decade or something? We'll have to see. Hmm. In fact, is it a 1970s or 80s film? It's released in 80, but it was made it's in 80. And the, everybody knows the best horror film of the 1980s is Evil Dead 2. But it, it's on the list. Well, that's a good plot spoiler for the future. We'll <laughs> so people forget it. In the meantime, we'll um, we'll sign out. So thank you for listening. Please get in touch. We were on um, we're on Twitter and Facebook. Twitter is yeah, Film Fives Pod, I think, or at Film Fives. Film Fives One, yes. That's one one each for each of us. Yeah. So Phil, thank you again as always. Thank, thank you very much. That was great. 
Yeah, brilliant. We hope you enjoyed this double bill, this uh, this two-part episode uh, series on Stanley Kubrick. And until next time, cut!